Kia ora koutou. My name is Rosita Allen. I'm an Auckland-based novelist and poet, and my recent publication, Crazy Love, is available right now in all good bookstores. I'd like to introduce you to my favourite episode from the NZSA podcast series featuring Paula Morris's November 2020 Janet Frame Memorial Lecture as President of Honour for that year. It was a beautiful summer evening in the McLaren Chapel at the University of Auckland. I remember the setting sun colouring the room through stained glass windows, the sides of faces tinged with soft apricot and pink hues. Paula had us laughing from the outset with quips about word usage, and in her signature style, Paula dives deeper into more important matters. She speaks after experiencing New Zealand's first series of lockdowns about the uncertainties of these times and how change is also a time of opportunism and reinvention. Paula addresses the giving and taking required to make art, which in our case is writing. Writing, she says, takes time from our everyday lives. It is greedy. To receive awards and fellowships, residencies and festival invitations, in fact to reach a publishing contract, we must first invest time in our art. Writers need to write. For her, it is a quelling of a pounding anxiety that turns her insides into an all-night building site. When I've been away from my own work too long, she says, I need to write. In writing, I give myself something that justifies the taking of time. I am happier. To get time away from our busy lives, Paula speaks of the residencies and fellowships, arts grants and awards that enable paid time away to dive and focus. Paula notes the giving and taking from the perspective of the donor philanthropist and the importance of patrons and the support system of our writing community. These are just a few points from the start of this informative and wonderfully entertaining lecture. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And remember, subscribe to the NZSA podcast to hear more revisited favourites this summer. Namahi. So tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. It is a privilege to speak to you tonight as the NZSA's President of Honour. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thank you to the board. Thank you to the NZSA for the title, which is an honour, and for the trust they've placed in me not to say anything offensive, because I did not have time for them to review my lecture. Now, to give the Janet Frame Memorial Lecture is another honour to respect the legacy, not only of Frame herself, but of the writers who've preceded me in giving this annual address. Now, whatever you may have heard, I'm not just here tonight to drink the free wine, though it was a blow knowing we couldn't bring glasses in here. <laughs> and to show off my new K-pop hair. Um, some of you gathered here tonight have heard me speak in public before, and perhaps you are thinking, I may clamber now onto one of my many hobby horses and gallop them around the chapel. Uh, you're waiting for me to rail, as usual, about the way too many people think of writing as about feelings and ideas rather than language and imagination. You brace yourself for my rants against the word atop. <laughs> you are prepared to mouth along with me the familiar questions, what is the subject of this sentence? What is the dramatic function of this scene? Where has point of view gone? Are you writing a play? You know all too well that on the back of my gravestone, I want to have engraved misuse of the as construction is the hallmark of amateur writing. <laughs> but no, don't worry. Tonight, I will talk about none of those things. I will not even mention them. It's gratifying to see so many of you here, writers, professionals from the literary world, one of my colleagues, <laughs> master students, past and present, my sister, I've been to a lot of her Goethe Society events in my time, so she owes me. <laughs> I'd like to say my undergraduates as well, but no, none of them are here. Now, this is exam and assessment time, so no doubt they are all at home writing. Those of you here tonight, thank you very much for being here. 
We are living through one of the strangest and most challenging of years and the results coming through from the election, it feels as though the equilibrium of the world seems to depend on it. This year, many of us in New Zealand and elsewhere have spent enforced time at home. We may have experienced claustrophobia, anxiety, isolation. We've been separated from some of our loved ones and crammed into too close quarters with others. Travel has been cancelled. We are wearing masks, disinfecting our hands. We've queued outside supermarkets. Many of us have lost jobs and income. And some of us may feel as though we've lost our way. To live in the era of global pandemic means to accept that life has changed and some things are no longer possible in the same way as before. Certainly it's hard to make any plans, isn't it? Except contingency plans. I don't know what has changed forever and what is temporary, and I'm not a doomsayer, determined that in the future all good things will be forbidden, expensive or dangerous. In New Zealand, we are fortunate, whatever the protesters I'm forced to listen to in Aotea Square every Saturday have to say, we do not live in a fascist regime. We are not experiencing civil war. The pandemic here is under control. We can gather here this evening in a way that many other people in many other countries cannot. Now, uh, this lecture, as Jenny said, is usually a state of the nation address about New Zealand literature. Perhaps, like the nation itself, if we avert our gaze from overseas, we'll be cautiously optimistic, or at least not entirely despondent. Over the last six months, I've spent a lot of time on Zoom with Alison Wong in Australia. She and I are co-editing an anthology. We talk about many things, as well as the work at hand, and many Korean television series to which we are both addicted. And I've created a few more addicts in the room, actually. Now, a few weeks ago, Alison told me she was not an optimist. She was a pragmatist, she said, who leans towards optimism. I've always thought of myself as an optimist, though this has been challenging at many points this year, not least during the three months I've been unable to walk. Perhaps I'm an optimist who leads towards opportunism. If things are bad, I'd rather not lament too long. How can something be rebuilt or re-envisioned? How can we collaborate and use our imaginations rather than wear what my mother called a twisty face, <laughs> which she would threaten to smack off us? Um, <laughs> it was the olden days. Now, in New Zealand, we're used to fresh starts and reinvention. For example, when New Zealand Post ended their sponsorship of our National Book Awards, there was much wringing of hands, was there not, and twisting of faces. But thanks to Nicola Leggett, who's here tonight, and a band of true believers, including Booksellers New Zealand, the Publishers Association, and Copyright Licensing, the awards managed to stay alive. In 2016, they were reinvented as the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, reflecting a big commitment to arts, the arts and literacy by Mark Todd of Ockham Residential. These new awards have drawn additional sponsors, individuals like Jan Medlicott through the Acorn Foundation, Mary and Peter Biggs. Peter made the mistake of sitting next to me at dinner. I'm gonna get money out of you. <coughs> And the company MitoQ, and I wanted to thank in particular Mahara, Mahara Inglis and John Marshall. That's the company that sponsors our first book awards. A certain amount of reinvention was required this year during lockdown. There will be changes again next year, and we'll have a new sponsor for one category. And three of the four categories, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be saying this, Belinda, but I'm going to, record numbers of books have been submitted, despite the immense challenges for our publishers this year. Now, when I think about reinvention, responding to changing times, I also think of the Michael King Writer Centre. Melanie Laville Moore is here. She's the chair of that. In 2005, it offered four residencies a year. In 2018, it changed that schedule to offer 15 residencies, including some specifically for emerging writers and some specifically for Maori and Pacifica writers. This change was to respond to the needs of writers now, most of whom have jobs and family responsibilities. And I think I can say in this room, 
Many of them are women and they can't leave their children for a year, much as they would like to. <clears throat> Next year, the centre will host 19 residencies and of those, seven are for emerging writers, selected from 74 applications. Another example, in 2013, when Buddle Finley withdrew its support from the Sargison Fellowship, Paul Grimshaw, who is husband to Charlotte, the writer, son-in-law of C.K. Stead, he took on the sponsorship with his own law firm. And without that, a fellowship that began over 30 years ago would have ended. Another example, I think of the way Reed NZ, which used to be called the Book Council, and its new executive, Juliet Blythe, stepped in after New Zealand Books ceased publication last year. Read NZ took over Hooked on Books, a site that develops the reading and writing skills of young reviewers and promotes YA books. Now, Juliet, who is a former bookseller, plans to in in introduce review writing workshops as part of their Writers in Schools programs. So this is another example of a good initiative facing challenges and good people with vision and skills, making sure it not only survives, but grows. And you'll note I'm mentioning the names of individuals, not just companies or organisations, because every change that happens, for better or worse, is a decision made or action taken or not taken by people. At the heart of these responses to challenges is my real subject tonight, giving and taking. There's a whakatoki, a proverb that says, komaru kai atu, komaru kai mai, Give as well as take, and all is well. In any language, that notion of reciprocity exists, reflecting the order of the natural world and the desire for harmony in our communities. We approach the Christmas season, so maybe I should reframe this as giving and receiving. Think of the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards as one example. Some individuals and institutions run by visionary people give money so the book awards can go ahead. We must mention Creative New Zealand here, of course, as well. Otherwise, they will cut us off. Um, <laughs> some individuals, like Anne O'Brien and her team at the Auckland Writers' Festival, give their expertise in a venue to make the event possible. Some of us give our time as organisers or judges. Giving and receiving, these two things when together in our literary sector, as it's called, Literary sector, I think, always sounds like an intellectual precinct in some futuristic city, but there we go. Now let me address the writers in the room. I know there are many of you here. You are my people. You are the NZSA's people too. I often cite this quote from Joseph Brodsky just to remind New Zealand writers we are not alone in our obscurity. He says, on any street of any city in the world, at any time of night and day, there are more people who haven't heard of you than those who have. <laughs> <coughs> so, fellow writers, let us reimagine ourselves as undercover agents. Our obscurity and opportunity to observe, infiltrate, possibly receive classified information. <coughs> in New Zealand, writers can define receiving in various ways. We can receive things that support us in our careers, grants, residencies, fellowships, prizes, awards, book deals, royalties, commissions, invitations to festivals, publicity, reviews. Now some of these things I've mentioned support our creative practice, some give us money, some also give us financial support and public recognition. But we can also receive less concrete but important sustenance throughout our writing lives, including mentoring and encouragement. Many of us have a peer group or trusted fellow writers who read our work and give feedback. Some writers remain in a small workshop group for years. In the late 90s, I met four other writers in a fiction workshop I took at the Writer's Voice at the Westside Y in New York. We formed our own group because the others were too crazy and um, we met every month for two years. By the time I left New York in early 2000, I was getting my first stories published and writing my first novel. Three of us from that group published books and it was instrumental, I think, in encouraging me to write in a regular and focused way. 
Now, much of that is about giving, isn't it? I mean, most of the months my group met in New York, we were reading and discussing someone else's work, not our own. Any workshop group functions on reciprocity. We give each other's work our full and considered attention. And if we're invited to appear at an event, at a festival, we're giving something of ourselves, performing, listening, discussing, engaging with interviewers and audiences. We don't just loll on a stage fuming until we can pick up our per diem and condescend to sign some books. Like Kurt Zayer, you can cut that bit out later. <laughs> now, in order to receive those invitations, residencies, fellowships, book deals, we have to give something vast of ourselves. We have to write. We start with nothing but what's inside us, the darkness and the light, our imaginations, our experience of the world. Then language is our medium. We write word by word. Writing, which includes the conjuring up, the dreaming, considering, revising and reconsidering, as well as the actual time spent placing and removing words on the page, takes time. We're back to giving and taking. Our creative practice takes time away from the rest of our lives. It is greedy and demanding. Then the process of writing often gives us things we don't want or don't expect. Grief, issues, obstacles, bad news. But after we've written, we may be given something else. Peace, perhaps, a sense of accomplishment. For me, it's the quelling of a pounding anxiety that turns my insides into an all-night building site when I've been away from my own work for too long. I need to write. In writing, I give myself something that justifies the taking of time. I am happier. Happy, that is, until someone else reads it. <laughs> My husband, or an editor, and says, there's just a few things. <laughs> Often editors seem to me like the character Franck in the 90s version of the film Father of the Bride. Don't know if you've seen it. When Franck first sees the house where the wedding's to take place, he says, oh, it's very nice. We change it all. <laughs> so in a writing life, there are always contradictions, disappointments. We want to give our work to the world, or perhaps sell it, often at quite a low price. But the world doesn't necessarily want to receive it. Because we have given so much of ourselves, because we have taken time from other things, our personal lives, our responsibilities, making money, having fun, and given that to our writing, we hope that something will be given to us in return. But the world owes us nothing. Like any artist, each of us must face that. We may give and not receive. Our satisfaction is in the creation of the work because, or in spite of the fact that, the life of the work does not turn out to be quite as long and glorious as we would have wished. Still, we go on, undeterred, though hopefully not deluded. If criticism and rejection hurt too much, then a writing life is not for you. I tell my students this all the time, right before I criticize and reject them. <laughs> no. I have to put that now in because it's being recorded. Um, too many times, both here and overseas, I hear from writers, that's it. They threaten they won't write again. They threaten to abandon the books they're working on. They threaten to leave whatever country they're in. Really, I have heard it too many times. No one can leave the country now anyway. <laughs> what does that mean? Do we write to be loved? So if the love is not a constant stream, we collapse from dehydration. This reminds me of a Frank O'Hara poem, and it ends this way. I see a headline. Lana Turner has collapsed. There is no snow in Hollywood. There is no rain in California. I have been to lots of parties and acted perfectly disgraceful, but I never actually collapsed. Oh, Lana Turner, we love you. Get up. 
Some years ago when I was starting out, I submitted a few stories at different times to a certain literary journal in New Zealand. Each time I was turned down with just a form note, nothing personal, no, encourage, no encouraging tries again. So I decided to stop submitting to that journal and I was able to place most of the stories elsewhere. The one I couldn't place, I left alone for 15 years, then rewrote it, put it in my 2017 collection, False River, published it myself. Um, now, when most short stories were turned down by this journal, at no time did I make public pronouncements. I required no pep talks. Luckily, there was no social media then. I couldn't write posts saying, what do you all think? Should I give up writing? <laughs> so I could be reassured by lots of near strangers about my genius and told how vile the turner down must be. Now, I'm not saying we can't indulge in self-pity or bitterness from time to time. Sometimes there's nothing more enjoyable than getting together with a friend, family member, or best of all, another writer, and having what Lily Allen calls a little wine and a moan. <laughs> but the subjective decisions of other people should not stop you writing. How can you live with yourself if you don't write? For any issue of any given journal, there are more submissions than there are spaces. For every contest, there are more submissions than there are prizes. For every residency, there are more applicants than there are rooms. For every Creative New Zealand grant, there are more submissions than there is available funding. And worst of all, for every reader, there are more books in the world than they could ever possibly read. And one quick plea, by the way, to my fellow writers, if you're thinking of applying for a grant of some kind and you don't really absolutely need the money, please don't apply. Don't seek recognition in this way and then feel rejected or unappreciated if you don't receive the grant in question. And if you do really need the money and don't get a grant, then you will have to do what writers without family money have done for centuries, which is write and work. It may take you much longer to write your book, as I know from experience, although taking longer may be better for the book in the end. Very few writers now or in the past get to live an ideal writing life. We are writers, nobody owes us. We may give what feels like everything and receive very little. Still, we go on. In creating art, we give to ourselves we nourish something that would otherwise wither or rot or worst of all, fester inside us. Sometimes I talk to people who are very concerned with getting an agent or getting published, but they haven't written yet or they haven't finished what it is they're writing. They are more intent on the receiving than on the essential part, the personal give and take of writing. Maybe they don't want to make the sacrifices without the promise of reward. Now this increased competition, if that's how you want to see it, for what can be received, is the product of both good and bad things. At Word Christchurch this past weekend, Bill Manhire talked about the 50th anniversary of the Catherine Mansfield Monton Fellowship. I had that last year. It was really good to be in France, by the way, in case you were wondering. Now this September, people said, are you glad to be home? It's this September, we were supposed to have a celebration in France. It was a mini festival. We were going for a whole month. They got cancelled. And Bill said this weekend, what struck me when I saw the draft program was how richly New Zealand literature had grown over the past 50 years. In 1970, it would have been fairly easy to read every novel and every book of poems that had been published in a 12-month period. And it might all have seemed a bit samey, to put it another way, back then our literature was an instrument that didn't play all that many notes. Now there are so many books of such extraordinary variety and quality that you wouldn't know where to begin. Catherine Mansfield herself would be astonished. I got him to email that to me. He did it right away, without questioning. I could have been misusing it in all sorts of ways. Anyway, Bill is quite right, is he not? New Zealand literature, that shape-shifting tanifa, has grown. This means more voices, more languages, more points of view, more styles, more genres. It also means more pressure on resources. And again, I hear complaints all the time. If only things were like the old days, 
when the literary fund bestowed generous grants on writers of talent, residencies lasted a year, and new books got long and intelligent reviews, and then New Zealanders rushed out to buy them. Now, now these old days sound pretty good, don't they? I don't know if anyone remembers them, because I'm not quite sure when they were. And I think maybe the 60s, when writers were men, and mainly Pākehā. Maybe the 70s or early 80s, when debut novels like Fiona Kidman's A Breed of Woman and Sue McCauley's Other Halves were major sensations. My mother said A Breed of Woman was a filthy book. Do you remember that? Do you remember that, Lindsay? Sorry, I'm just addressing my sister. That was an ad lib. Um, but after our event on Sunday, Bill told me that he thought if Frank Sargison came back to life now, he would be really impressed with what's available for writers and not nostalgic for those old days one bit. Now, the bad thing to which I referred, Creative New Zealand isn't increasing funding for literature to reflect this expansion of our writing community and its endeavours. And as Jenny will tell you, literature can seem very short-changed compared with other art forms. And also, as Paula Browning told us, copyright in New Zealand is under attack, hence the launch of today's new campaign. Uh, last year, Paula asked me to give a keynote at a symposium in Wellington, the Copyright Symposium. And this is what I said as part of that address. Writers should be able to reap the fruits of our labour. We don't owe our culture a favour. We are not producing content. Other money-making businesses need to pay us because, like them, we want to earn money and should earn money because not only are we in the business of creation, we are the creators. And just to remind industry of this, the Copyright Council of New Zealand in 2014 changed its name to We Create. Now, in 2008, in this Janet Frame Memorial Lecture, Greg O'Brien discussed what he saw as a collapse in literary criticism. He said there was too little review space and coverage was sporadic and lukewarm. And he talked fondly of the 80s, as we all do, when he said, landfall reviewed just about everything worth reviewing. Now, thinking of Bill's comments, we know this is no longer possible. There may be fewer large local publishers and much more difficult commercial conditions for all, but there are more writers, some of whom are publishing with small presses or independently. Some emerge through community classes, through Maori networks like Te Ha, or through mentoring programs. Some are emerging through Instagram. Many are publishing for the first time online, not in print. The anthology I mentioned that Alison Wong and I have been editing for the past year is called A Clear Dawn, New Asian Voices, New Zealand, and that will be published by Auckland University Press next May. Our kaupapa was emerging Asian writers of poetry, fiction or non-fiction, those who have published no more than two books at the time of selection. And in the long introduction that we have finally managed to finish, we wrote this. The AUP Anthology of New Zealand Literature, edited by Jane Stafford and Mark Williams, was published in 2012. In a book of over 1,100 pages, featuring work by 200 authors, only three Asian writers are included, Chris Thies, Alison Wong, and the playwright Jacob Ragin. The editors said, the full arrival of a multicultural literature as found in the US, the UK, Australia, or Canada, has yet to occur. Now, this may have been true in 2012, but even then, there were more writers and works to consider for inclusion. Many reviews of the anthology focused on its omissions, but none interrogated the absence of Asian writers. So, the difference between 2012 and 2021, which is when our anthology will be published, is enormous. Our book will include work by Nod Ghosh, Gregory Khan, Sharon Lamb, Rose Liu, Nina Mingya Powells, and Chris Tees. Now, these are writers you've probably heard of because they publish books themselves. But the total number of writers in the book is 75, and many of them are publishing their creative work in print for the first time. We read at least double that number of writers. The youngest author in the anthology is at high school, the oldest is in her 80s. I've also been involved over the last year with the anthology Ko Aotearoa Tato, 
a creative response to the mosque attacks in Christchurch. We just launched it at uh, Word Christchurch and it's a very beautiful book, thanks to Otago University Press. One writer, Michelle Alvey, had the vision for this anthology. And together with another writer, Jim Norcliffe, lured me into the fold as co-editor. The co-pupper was to seek out the multiplicity of voices that enrich New Zealand today. And in my launch speech, I said of our editing process that together we roamed geographically and creatively, seeking and discovering. What is New Zealand now? How do our writers and artists see it, interrogate it, celebrate it, bemoan it? How do they subvert expectations and confront readers with different experiences and points of view? How many places is this one country? What are we now and what might we become? Some of the writers in the anthology spoke at that event. It was Friday where they read Hanif Kwasi, Gillian Sullivan, Vera Dong, Gazala, sorry, I've got, to, I've got to get my emphasis right, Gazale Golbaksh, I was saying it wrong, David Gregory, Donna Miles Mojab, Mohammed Hassan, Selena Tusitala Marsh, Esame Ranapiri, and Ewen Wong. She's the head girl, who's our youngest member. Other writers from the anthology who were in the audience at the launch included Melanie Kwang, Nima Singh, and Suda Ra. Our national literature, if such a thing can be defined, is growing and changing. As Bill said, Catherine Mansfield would be astonished. Perhaps the editors of a decade ago would be as well. Now, other anthologies are afoot. One of queer writing from 1985 to the present, edited by the writers Emma Barnes and Chris Teese, and a poetry anthology around the subject of climate change, edited by writers Jordan Hamill, Rebecca Hawkes, Eric Kennedy, and Esme Ranapiri. All these anthologies are examples of writers giving as well as receiving writers giving their time as editors so a wider range of voices can be heard. Perhaps we're in a national moment for anthologies. An example of a recent publishing success here is Purako, Māori Myths, retold by Māori writers, published by Penguin in 2019. It sold over 5,000 copies. This too was edited by writers, Wati Ihimaira and Fiti Hereaka. It followed a superb anthology of fiction, from Māori, Pacifica, and indigenous writers from around the Pacific, Black Marks on the White Page, edited by Witty and Tina Makareti. Again, writers are the people behind these projects, conceiving them, seeking the necessary partnerships with publishers. We give as well as receive. When we edit rather than write, we become gatekeepers, and we take that responsibility seriously, knowing the impact on writers of exclusion. Alison and I were guided by Emily Dickinson, who wrote, Not knowing when the dawn will come, I open every door. Now, imagine if Frank Sargison and Catherine Mansfield were here, sitting maybe behind me tonight. Maybe they're joined by Ronald Hugh Morrison, Eileen Duggan, maybe Dame Naya Marsh. I wonder what they would think when I mention a few recent highlights of publishing in New Zealand this year. Wang Wai Chan won the Junior Fiction Prize at our New Zealand Children and Young Adults Awards Book Awards for her novel The Lizard's Tale, set in post-war Singapore. The winner of the Illustration Award at the same ceremony was The Adventures of Tupaya, about the great Pacific navigator, by Courtney Cena Meredith and illustrated by Māori artist Matt Tate. My colleague Selena Tusitala-Marsh's graphic memoir, Mophead, which is such a success, She's published a sequel, won the Nonfiction Award. And the publishers for those books were Text Australia, Allen and Unwa New Zealand, and Auckland University Press. The novel that won the Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize for Fiction this year, how much was that again? Oh, was it $55,000? Yes, it was. It was Owe, the debut novel by Becky Manua too, published by Independent Makaro Press, which usually publishes just one novel a year. This weekend, Owe also won Best Novel at the Nio Marsh Awards, which is our national prize for crime writing. Now, our ghostly guests may be thinking, oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Wait till I tell them about the Kotahiro Pukapuka Initiative, 
launching its first titles next week that aims to create, or tonight maybe even, actually, because you know, we can't be in Auckland unless we have clashing events, okay? It aims to create a great library of literature in te reo Māori that every home and school will be proud to own, including original work in te reo and translations from global languages. You might have heard one of the Harry Potter books is in this first um, tranche. I am proud to say that my own novel, Rangatira, originally published by Penguin in English, by Walde and Graf in German, will be published in Te Reo next year. I'm happy, yes. <laughs> now. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that happy, but okay. Now, if there's any more money, I'm really happy. Okay, if they're making it into a movie, you could all clap. Now, all this year's award-winning writers who I've mentioned have received much help getting their books to the point of winning awards. Publishing is a collaboration, a relationship. Publishers give us their expertise. They give us a team, editors, proofreaders, designers, typesetters, translators, printers, marketing, sales, in New Zealand, they are also taking a financial risk. Now, sometimes that risk is rewarded. The Adventures of Tupaya, for example, has sold over 6,000 copies. It is a beautiful book. But much of the time, our books do not make anyone rich or even comfortable. And sometimes the publisher is not breaking even. And I think I'm being kind when I say sometimes. Now let's return to Greg O'Brien in 2008 and his fears of a collapse in literary criticism. I haven't asked Greg about this, but I suspect he thinks things have got much, much worse. There was talk last year, as you recall, and earlier this year, of an even more severe collapse. We saw the very last issue of New Zealand Books and the abandonment by Bauer of The Listener, Metro, North and South, New Zealand Women's Weekly, numerous other magazines. It all looked quite bleak, even to an optimist like me. So the opportunist had to rouse herself. After four years, having declared the Academy of New Zealand Literature site would never run book reviews, Harley Hearn and I asked Creative New Zealand if we could redirect our funding for exactly that purpose. Since May, we've run long book reviews by excellent reviewers, some of whom are ANZL members, on Wednesdays and Fridays. Tom Moody, my celebrated husband, edits and manages the book reviews. Like me, he does this work for the Academy for free, though he possibly had less choice in the matter. <laughs> we now have a relationship with Canvas and the New Zealand Herald to provide shorter versions of selected reviews for them and some features that cites reviews and interview writers. I don't know how long we will and should publish reviews because the listener and its cohort are back in business though I do hope our long and intelligent reviews are helping a little to fill the gap left by New Zealand books, and that our short and intelligent reviews are persuading Canvas readers, who are numerous, to buy more books. In the 80s, Greg said, Lamfall reviewed just about everything worth reviewing. You remember that? But I thought Lamfall was published just twice a year and reached only a certain audience. Since then, I think our notion of what is worth reviewing has changed. Landfall itself now has the review online, publishing 11 times a year with five or six long reviews, and this is in addition to the five reviews in the biannual print edition. Now I would argue, despite less space in newspapers for books, with an honorable exception given to the Otago Daily Times, which is fantastic, there's almost no space on TV, we have an increasing amount of book coverage elsewhere. Podcast series, I'm sure some of you listen to podcasts, you're probably making one as you're sitting there, um, include Paper Cuts by the Time Out team, Book Bubble by writers Nikki Pellegrino and Stacey Gregg where they interview other writers, and the new How to Love series by writer Sonia Wilson who's here tonight. Another writer, Josie Shapiro, also here tonight, has created a blog, Read Close, that reviews New Zealand fiction. One of our most celebrated poets, Paula Green, celebrates and reviews New Zealand writing through her blog's Poetry Box for Younger Readers and New Zealand Poetry Shelf. The Sapling, as many of you know, is an excellent site about books for younger readers, including reviews and interviews. 
We have increased book coverage and dedicated sections on sites like Newsroom and a spin-off. Kete, which is the site created by the new sector-wide coalition for books as a local answer to LitHub, has also stepped into the breach by commissioning reviews. I, I was involved with setting up Kete until I was chucked off for conflict of interest. I wish I could be expelled from more committees for that reason, and I will try my best over the coming year to be thrown off everything. I've given quite a lot at this point, including liberal helpings of my strong opinions, so perhaps a retreat is in order. Uh, David Hill, the last NZSA President of Honour, talked about not having the temperament to serve on committees, for which I envy him. It's, it's a good one, isn't it? It's a good one. Um, he does his part, he says, by donating to the NZSA every year, as well as paying his membership. And I thought of that like the koha my brother and I pay to our marae every month to make up for the fact that we never go up to mow the lawns. Uh, some of us can give with service, can we not? Some of us can give with money. Now, I suspect everyone in this room is pressed for time. So much is asked of us, not least by our employers. We have many, many demands on us, I understand. Yet I ask you anyway, as denizens of the New Zealand literary world, what can you give? How can you help change or improve or enrich things? Not as part of your job, where you were possibly already giving a great deal, but as what we used to call in Louisiana, lanyard, a little something extra. Look what writers are doing. Chloe Lane, the fiction writer, is the founding editor and publisher of Hue and Cry Press. Kiri Piahana Wong, the poet, has published Briar Wood, Apirana Taylor, Simone Caho, and Suri Barford, among others, on Anahira Press. Jane Arthur and Catherine Robertson, two fine writers, have just opened a bookshop in Wellington called Good Books. Amy Wang is another person I want to salute, a writer herself, whose site, Hainamana, about Asian New Zealand art and culture, is now developing and publishing a number of emerging writers. She received funding to expand the literature section of the site from the Matatui Foundation, which was, in turn, established by the Auckland Writers' Festival. There is so much giving in our literary community. The indefatigable Renee Liang has conceived and run a number of her new Kiwi Women Write community courses, funded by local boards, and producing publications for each cohort. Through teaching at one of these, I met Zining Oi, a stunning writer who's working on a novel. She went on to receive an NZSA mentorship. An excerpt from her novel is included in our New Asian Voices anthology. Without Renee's community initiatives, Zining might not have received these other opportunities. I bore people everywhere by saying, we cannot complain that the field is sparse if we haven't taken time to sow the seeds. Renee, who as you know is also a doctor and a poet and a playwright and a librettist, works very hard to sow those seeds. Now, one more person. For the second year, Sonia Wilson is running her Kiwi Christmas Books campaign. She asks us to buy a brand new book, preferably by a Kiwi author or illustrator, to donate to kids who she says are doing it tough at Christmas. Sonia is from Fiordland or somewhere, so she often speaks in this way. <laughs> Last year, the campaign was Auckland-only and collected over 1,600 books. This year, it's in eight cities around the country with numerous places to drop off books or buy books and numerous people volunteering to collect books. New Zealand writers, booksellers and publishers benefit from this. A number of charities, including Women's Refuges, City Mission, get presents for children. This is all about giving and receiving. And please visit the site, kiwichristmasbooks.org, and spread the word. Now, I do understand if you feel you don't have the time, resources, or energy to open a bookshop, manage a website, set up an indie publishing house, or run a nationwide campaign. I know, there are a lot of excellent Korean dramas on Netflix and I could give you a list of recommendations. And they usually have 16 um, hour-long episodes and you may never find time to write again. <laughs> but we can all do something to support our own community of writers, booksellers, publishers, festivals and organisations. Firstly, we can buy books. 
In the op-ed I wrote for the Sunday Star Times last week, I said that if every New Zealand writer who entered a story competition also brought a story collection or anthology, sales would soar. We can give books as friends, as books as gifts to friends and whanau, or donate them via Sonia's campaign or directly to charities. We can recommend books and lend them to friends. We can read or listen to book reviews and spread the word, not looking to overseas lists of the best this and that, because most of our books exist here and here alone, not in another hemisphere. We can give gift subscriptions for journals like Landfall, Sport, Takahe, or for younger readers, Toy Toy. We can take books by New Zealanders out of the library because that too supports our community through the public lending rights scheme. The NZSA has lobbied for improvements to PLR, by the way, helping to drive the current review by the National Library. What else can we do? Talk to each other. We can be more informed. If you have an idea or think there's an absence where there should be a presence, who can you contact? Who can you ring or email or Zoom? Half of the emails I send right now, it seems, are introductions, X, meet Y. You seem to be interested in doing similar things. Just this morning, and not that I was writing this at the last minute or anything, uh, someone emailed me from Auckland to discuss a writing-related issue, and I suggested a person they could contact in Wellington. And then a different person from Wellington emailed me because she'd been giving my details by someone else. Now we're having a Zoom chat on Friday. I've been called a gatekeeper myself, never in a nice way. But to me, this is what gatekeepers do. Accept the responsibility. Do the work. Reach out to others. Ask questions because you don't know everything and everyone. Make the connections. Swing the gate open. What else can we all do? Read. Not just books, but also all the book coverage I've mentioned. And also sites like The Pantograph Punch, sites like Itangata, which publishes essays by Maori and Pacifica writers on Sundays. Seek mentorings or groups of that will help you, or mentor other people as writers, reviewers, editors, as mavens who can see the bigger picture of what's going on and what isn't. Next year, when I'm forcibly removed from every board and trust with which I'm involved, other people need to take my place. As we did in Ko Aotearoa Tato, we must include the multiplicity of voices that enrich this country, all places, all communities. This is hard work, but necessary, and often not as hard and much more necessary than we imagine. Not knowing when the dawn will come, I open every door. Now, uh, finally, I've, or more or less finally, don't get excited, um, I've read many of the other Janet Frame Memorial Lectures, and I fear this one is more personal and less erudite than most. Although I work here at the University of Auckland, I think I do for now anyway, um, I don't write or give lectures. I, I teach seminars and workshops. So pleased to see so many people from my Corbin's crew from earlier this year. That was a lovely time. I am apparently one of the youngest people to give this lecture. Yes, so I'll claim the foolishness of youth. Although these days I am not as young as I might be. Really, nothing. Okay. <laughs> a few weeks ago, another writer told me that I am an elder statesman, even though, as she noted, I am younger than she is. I don't want to be an elder statesman, by the way, unless it comes with a lavish pension. Someone today at Tewanaga called me fire, and I thought, that's it. I've crossed over into the world of aunties. Now, my project early-ish next year is to set up something I've been talking about for four years, an online Māori literature hub. This, I hope, will be the go-to site for Māori writers at all stages of their writing lives, a place to get clear information and links about mentorships, writing groups, prizes, book awards, residencies, places to publish. This is something that's very important to me. I believe it's necessary, and I think it's not too complicated, although I am an optimist, as discussed. I won't be doing it alone, because I need to be part of a team. I need help. Ko maru kai atu, ko maru kai mai, ka nohe nohe. Give as well as take, and all as well. 
But before I do this or anything else, I am finishing work on my novel, Yellow Palace. It's been at the end of my list for too long when every day I wanted to be at the top or for there to be no list at all. December and January beckon with no classes to teach or mark, no manuscripts to read, no public engagements. I would like to say no meetings, but that would be wishful thinking. And often people, you know, tell me to do less right before they ask me to do something. May was the last time I opened the document that is my almost finished novel. I was still reading and supervising master's manuscripts in July when the new cohort of 12 began workshops. For many weeks of this year, I was reading tens of thousands of words every day. Now, during lockdown, I did write another book that's coming out next week, Shining Land, about Robin Hyde, a collaboration with the photographer Haru Samashima, so don't think I've been slacking off. That book was commissioned by another writer, Lloyd-Jones, who devised a picture book series for Massey University Press. Writers' imaginations and determination are powerful things. Lloyd opened a door for me, and I'm grateful to him. He gave me an opportunity to write something. Now, all this time since May, my novel has been alive in my head, its characters as vivid to me as anyone real. I daydream about the story and consider various what-ifs. This interruption to writing the book has been one of many, so work on it has had to continue in my imagination. When I'm able to give the pages themselves my full attention, next month I will be ready. For how can we live with ourselves if we don't write? Kia ora tātou. Nā mihi nui. This podcast was produced by me, Elizabeth Kirkby McLeod, with music performed by Justin Bird. To hear more episodes of NZSA Live or NZSA Oral History Podcast, subscribe to our podcast feed on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can catch it on our website, authors.org.nz.